friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David, as we are rapidly running out of summer, David. Don't remind me, Neil. It's a disappointing development that seems to come about every year, but uh, at least in the meantime, we'll try to enjoy what sunshine we have left here in the Northern Hemisphere, and maybe we'll do a podcast. So, David, the way this works is you are actually my brother. This is a real true fact. You're my brother, and I ask you the question that's in the title, and then you tell us other true facts about history. So, David, oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's the middle of August, 1943, and on the small Mediterranean island of Vis, a small Italian occupation garrison of 50 men is asleep. Or at least, that's what they report later when they have to explain to Italian high command how a small band of Yugoslav communist resistance fighters broke into their fort, stole some of their weapons and most of their ammunition, and escaped. The initial reaction of Italian high command is to demand that the garrison massacre civilian hostages in retaliation, and 20 innocent villagers on the island are executed. But only a few days later, with Italy in a state of collapse as the Allied invasion of Sicily continues, the Italian high command changes its mind and decides, with partisan activity on the island too high, the garrison is to withdraw. David, this sounds a little bit like a Mad Libs at times here. We've got Italians defending an island, and they're going to be attacked by the Yugoslavian resistance who steal from them. And then there's this horrible reaction from the Italian high command killing innocent villagers. That's never good to see. So what's to become of this garrison, David, if they're going to now abandon the island? Well, the garrison, unsurprisingly, hops on the next boat for Italy and vanishes out of our story. But the island of Vis and the islanders, even if not all of them were sympathetic to the specifically communist tenor of the resistance in Yugoslavia, after the massacre, they're clearly not on board with the Italians or any other Axis power coming back. So, in late August and early September of 1943, once the Italian garrison has fled, essentially, the island becomes temporarily independent. A lone island, roughly in the center of the Mediterranean Sea between Italy and modern-day Croatia, then a part of Yugoslavia, is not occupied at this point by anybody in the war. But of course, that won't last for long. Right, David. I guess we should have mentioned that this is 1943, so we're in the middle of World War II, but now this island is independent. I don't, to this day, know of a country of Vis, so it must not have remained that way forever. What happens on this island, David, when they find themselves suddenly without really any national oversight? Well, the islanders, as I've said, are now fiercely hostile to the Axis powers. But they have no such hostility towards the Allies. On the contrary, that's exactly who they're looking for, for help. And one perhaps unexpected 
country is very interested in helping them. Great Britain, Winston Churchill, the British prime minister at the time, is deeply interested in trying to help the resistance, the communist Yugoslav resistance, fight the Germans. And therefore, he's been looking for a base from which his forces can support and shuttle supplies to the Yugoslav mainland. So this small island suddenly just becoming available with no need for combat to take it is an unexpected windfall supporting this plan. And the British are quick to start organizing a force to take the island, defend it, and use it as a base to support the resistance in Yugoslavia. Well, David, that is a nice little windfall there for the allies that they can take this island without force. Although judging by the ease with which the Yugoslavian communist resistance managed to steal from the Italian garrison that was originally there, it doesn't sound like they would have had much trouble taking over the island in the first place, even if the Italians had still been there. But David, a windfall for the Brits. Are they able to get a base quickly established there? Well, it takes them roughly a month to get organized and get a force sent to Vis. So it's really only in October that the British garrison is arriving, but nobody gets there first. So the British are indeed able to establish a force on Vis that they're going to be using for operations across the Adriatic Sea. And what a garrison they decide to send. The initial force consists of number two commando commanded by mad jack churchill known to be the last man to have used a longbow in action when on one of his early raids in 1940 during world war ii he carried a longbow and a claymore rather than a rifle purely so that he could say that he was the last man to have carried a longbow and sword into combat. David, that is really cool, but also just doing something cool does not seem like a good reason to go into war without a gun. I mean, he was an officer and firing a gun is not really his job. His job is to command the troops and direct them. But also there's a reason why his nickname is Mad Jack, not Sane Jack. He's no relation, by the way, to British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. We're going to have a few too many Churchill's in this story, so I just thought I'd mention that. Also with him, by the way, is his brother Tom Churchill. So he's commanding the ground troops who will be garrisoning this island. The commander of the naval forces, because of course this is an island and they'll need naval forces to protect it, is Admiral Walter Cowan, who at this point is 80 years old. He was forced out at mandatory retirement at 65, just like everyone else. That was before World War II started. He was only allowed back into the Navy during 1940 when the British Isles were facing the very real threat of German invasion. And desperate for every trained officer they could get, they allowed certain volunteers who'd been forced out on mandatory retirement back in. And he's been using his political connections ever since to remain in the Navy as the Navy has actively attempted to force him out because they view him as too old for an active command. And somehow or another, he's ended up on this island 
And not to be outdone by his land-based counterpart, he's already announced that he intends to personally go along on missions in the combat craft that will be operating out of Vis. And because we don't have a interesting enough cast of characters yet, the third British commander on the island is the political commander whose job is to work with the Yugoslav partisans, because of course that's the purpose of establishing this base in the first place. His name is Fitzroy McLean. He's a British MP who has taken a leave of absence from the House of Commons in order to be a spy. And he's been working for the British SOE, their Special Forces Spy Agency, for the past three years. And he's been operating in the Western Desert behind Rommel's lines, gathering information for the British Army there. Then he got sent to Central Asia to see what was going on with their Russian allies and their war against Germany. And most recently, he's parachuted into Yugoslavia in order to meet with the leader of the Yugoslav partisans, the communist leader Tito, who is, of course, the man who he will now be trying to work with. Well, David, we've got quite a cast of characters, Mad Jack Churchill, Admiral Walter Cowan, and Fitzroy McLean. Now, can these guys actually get some operations going to help the Yugoslavs and hinder the Axis war effort in that neck of the woods? Well, the first thing they need to do to get anything useful done is to establish an ability to actually reach mainland Yugoslavia. Because, of course, all of their efforts on the island are useless if they can't get across the ocean and reach the mainland. So there's two separate urgent projects which they put underway at this point to try and develop the capability to do that. The first one is to build an airfield, which is quickly successful, actually. They've got the engineering capability to build an airstrip. This is World War II. Planes are simpler. They, it's not a very complex airfield, but it doesn't have to be. And very quickly, they've got an airfield ready for operations that can allow allied fighter and bomber planes to fly over Yugoslavia. But of course, they don't have yet a large group of fighters or bombers since the main allied forces are tied up in the campaign in Italy and can't spare frontline aircraft for this kind of a sideshow. So the second thing they get to work doing is preparing the fishing port already in existence on the island to operate allied motor torpedo boats, which are going to be for the rest of the campaign, really the primary weapon of the island of Vis. So, David, what are these motor torpedo boats? What are they like? So, motor torpedo boats are essentially a motorboat built very much like the sort of civilian motorboats you're probably familiar with, a big engine in the back and a pointy front. They're typically built out of plywood, very thin plywood. There's no armor here. There's no defense. If they get shot at, their only defense is their speed. And they're equipped with a pair of 
torpedo launching tubes that can fire the heavy and powerful ship killing weapons that are modern naval torpedoes and that are their primary weapon usually and also a collection of rapid fire automatic machine guns and cannon whatever they can get put up on their deck to be used to suppress enemy ships during an attack and prevent that prevent enemy ships from shooting them because like i've said they have no armor their only defense is high speed and their powerful weapons so the sort of men who command these kind of vessels have to be willing to take certain risks let's say the best defense is a good offense david but that doesn't necessarily mean i would want to have no defense on my boat so they're fairly close from this island of Vis, David, to the actual coastline of Yugoslavia. What sort of operations are they going to run here? Is this an attempt to attack naval bases, to get spies into occupied territory? What are they trying to do? So let's take just a quick mention of the strategic situation in Yugoslavia in 1943 and 1944 since I don't think many people are very familiar with that. Of course, we all know the strategic situation in Yugoslavia in 1943, David, but, you know, you can go on and tell us anyway. So, in the early portion of the war, the Germans had overrun Yugoslavia very quickly. The Yugoslav army was not modern or efficient and was not able to defend itself against the German attack. But the Yugoslav people were very anti-German by and large. And the result of this was a very large resistance movement grew very quickly. And Yugoslavia turned out to be almost the perfect place for that to happen. It's a very mountainous area, which meant that there were many places for resistance fighters being pursued by the Germans to hide, to evade pursuit. And it's a very rural area that's very agricultural. So people who were fleeing and had to stay out in the country and use fake names and everything to avoid the Germans were more likely to be able to find enough food to survive than in more Western, arguably advanced nations that were more urban and industrialized, but had fewer places for resistance fighters to escape after they launched an attack. So the Yugoslav resistance very quickly became the largest resistance movement, the largest active resistance movement in Europe. And it started tying down more and more German troops. In 1943, we reach what is roughly the peak of the German deployment in Yugoslavia. They've deployed 17 divisions, which comes out to almost 200,000 German troops are occupying this one country that is not on the front lines against either Britain and America or Russia. Now, these aren't the best troops available to Germany, and they certainly don't have the best equipment, but 200,000 guys is a lot of guys, and they would be a very big threat to either the Allied operations in Italy and later Normandy, or to the Russian operations on the Russian front, if the Germans could send them out of Yugoslavia and use them. But of course, the Germans can't, because they have to keep down these resistance groups. So the goal, the reason why the island of Vis has been taken as a base by the British, is just to supply 
whatever support for the partisan resistance groups they possibly can, whether it's weapons or supplies or launching daring commando raids in order to distract the Germans or using air power to strike at any German formations in Yugoslavia or using the motor torpedo boats they're putting on the island to seize transport ships taking German supplies from Austria and Italy to into Yugoslavia, which is one of the main ways that the Germans are resupplying their units there with everything they need to fight. Whatever they can do that will keep the Germans tied down a little bit more for a little bit longer from the British strategic perspective in 1943 is very well worth it. And that means that they're going to try everything. So it sounds like things are going pretty well for the Allies here, David. Obviously, you don't want to have the territory occupied by the Germans, but the resistance here is stronger than maybe in some other places. So that is a positive. What are going to be some of the notable operations that come from this fortuitous taking of the island of Vis? Well, the first one actually comes in early 1944. The Germans can read the numbers of troops they have in Yugoslavia just as clearly as the Allies can. And they can see what a problem it is for Germany that these resistance groups are still effective. And they decide to try a bold operation to try and wipe out the leadership of the communist resistance, which is the largest resistance group in Yugoslavia, in a single stroke in early 1944. The head of the communist resistance is Josep Braz Tito, and the Germans decide that they're going to use a parachute unit, a parachute battalion, drop it on his headquarters, which they've managed to find through their spies, and capture him, kill his headquarters, which they believe will decapitate the resistance and let them hold the area with fewer troops and use the troops that they can take out of it against the Allies in Normandy. So the Germans begin that operation. They do the parachute drop. It's called Operation Rosselsprung, Operation Knight's Move, and it fails. It succeeds at its goal of taking the headquarters where Tito actually was. But Tito, when they see the airplanes coming over, is rushed to a secret bunker because the partisans think it's just a bombing raid. But the Germans didn't know about this bunker, and Tito is able to escape with some of his core leadership. But now he has to flee. He's cut off from his usual units, and he needs to reestablish his control over the communist resistance movement in Yugoslavia, and he needs a safe base from which to do that. And of course, he knows that the island of Vis has been taken over by the British and is entirely safe from the Germans but is technically still Yugoslav soil. So that's where he goes. So suddenly, we've got another senior leader on Vis. I know we didn't have enough characters in this podcast, but now Tito is also operating from the island. Well, that's going to make things easier for Fitzroy McLean, at least. It was in his connection with Tito. He no longer needs to try to connect with the mainland to talk with the leader of the Yugoslavian resistance. So we now have a lot of senior leadership on the island of Vis, David. You mentioned the Germans have 200,000 troops in Yugoslavia at this point. How hard would it be for them to take over Vis or to attack this British garrison that's there? 
Well, the problem for the Germans is their lack of a navy in the Adriatic Sea. They just don't have the boats to move their troops over to Vis. And if they want to try an airborne assault, like the one they just used to attack Tito immediately before he fled here, again, they don't have the air superiority they would need to fly a bunch of transport planes over to this island. The Allies, by this point, have more fighters, more bombers, more air power in general. They've got an air base on Vis. It's not operating a lot of planes yet, but they've got their first Spitfire squadron there trying to fly a bunch of slow transport planes to attack the island would be suicide. So even though the Germans have massive numerical advantages on land, if they can't cross the water to reach the island, those advantages won't help them attack Vis. Ah, uh, the classic British story of World War II, David, the advantage of being an island. It's paying off for them, not just on the actual island of England, but here in the Adriatic Sea as well. And I suppose by this point, the Italians are being overrun, so they're no longer able to provide assistance there, David? Indeed, by early 1944, Italy has surrendered to the Allies. It's more complicated than that, of course. Mussolini is trying to establish a new Italian government in the north, but the broad outline from the perspective of Vis is the Italians are no longer a threat insofar as this island is concerned. So, David, is it merely a matter now of sort of supporting the efforts there and running out the end of the war here? We're getting pretty close to D-Day and the Allies starting to actually take over Europe. Actually, it's almost the opposite. The British, like I've said, strategically, they want to keep the partisans in the fight. That's why they're on Vs. And they know that partisan morale has taken a huge hit because Tito has effectively fled the country and Everyone knows that, you know, Vis is technically still part of Yugoslavia, but everyone knows that the Germans attacked Tito's base and he couldn't defend it. So the British see a real need to do something to distract the Germans from operations to attack the partisans and to encourage the partisans to believe that help is coming, that they're getting support from the Western allies. So the orders come down that Vis is not to remain quiet. Vis is to go on the offensive in any way they possibly can. And so now it's time for me to introduce yet another crazy character into this podcast. All right, David, bring it on. Who is going to take the lead here on this offensive assault from Vis to try and bolster the partisans in Yugoslavia? So it's time to send a new squadron of motor torpedo boats to give Vis more striking power. But these aren't your ordinary motor torpedo boats. They're motor gunboats, so-called because they've had their torpedoes taken out, and the only weapons they have are the guns on their deck. But of course, they've used that opportunity of less weight from torpedoes to pack even more automatic cannons onto their decks than are already normal for British motor torpedo boats. And the commander of this flotilla is a Canadian from Ottawa whose name is Tommy Fuller. And he's got something of a reputation in the Canadian Navy. 
He was actually managed a construction company before the war began. At the start of the war, he tried to volunteer and every service, every Canadian armed service wanted him to construct things because he ran a construction company. And of course, all kinds of bases and things needed to be built in Canada. And he insisted that he would only sign up if they would let him go to a combat unit immediately and fight. And that's why he ended up in the Navy in the motor torpedo boats, which were desperate enough for volunteers that they were willing to ignore all of the pressure from other services who wanted to get him doing his real specialty in construction. And since that point, he's gained a reputation fighting with the motor torpedo boats in the English Channel. He's earned the Distinguished Service Cross, and he has a reputation for being extremely aggressive as a motor torpedo boat commander. Sounds like a crazy Canuck, David. So he arrives and immediately earns the nickname the Pirate of the Adriatic by beginning a policy instead of sinking transport ships, German transport ships bringing supplies to the German army in Yugoslavia, he begins a policy of trying to convince them to surrender by having partisan guides who he brings with him on his boats shout threats to the crew of the boat that they will sink it with torpedoes if the crew doesn't surrender. Remember that most of his boats don't have torpedoes. He's usually lying, but the Germans by this point are so demoralized that he manages to seize a number of boats and use the supplies he seized from the Germans. He takes them to Yugoslavia and gives them to the partisans to help them continue their resistance against the Germans. So Tommy Fuller, the pirate of the Adriatic, is a high-stakes bluffer here, David. He doesn't have the torpedoes, but he's telling the Germans he does and convincing them to surrender on that basis. This sounds like it's a real win for the Allies, David. Indeed. And it's not merely his piratical ways, although those get him the most dramatic reputation of all of his adventures, but he also helps to run commando raids. He helps to take Mad Jack Churchill's commando troops on board his boats and run them to various islands off the coast of Yugoslavia that are still occupied by the Germans or occasionally onto the mainland itself so that they can run commando raids there and keep the Germans busy. Because if the Germans have to be defending the coastline, then they can't use those troops to hunt down the resistance. And by the way, Admiral Cowan, who we mentioned earlier, who was 80 years old and claimed he was going to go onto a frontline combat with his forces, actually does. He is the oldest man to go on a commando raid with the British commandos in World War II. So we have an 80-year-old commando, Admiral. We have a pirate from Canada. And we have a bunch of Yugoslavian communist resistance. David, this is a oddball bunch of troops and leaders and commandos that we have here in the Adriatic Sea. But it's working for the Allies is this going to turn the tide of the war in Yugoslavia? Yes, as much as anything can be said to have been valuable and helpful in keeping the Yugoslav resistance supported through 1944. And I should say, of course, that the Yugoslav resistance in itself were heroic and 
were unlikely to surrender no matter what the Germans or the Allies did. But the island of Wies continues to be a bastion as 1944 goes on, more planes become available. The American Air Force is sending more planes to Europe every month. And of course, some of them are finally available for this sideshow on Wies fighting in Yugoslavia. And also, in a clever move, Italian pilots who surrendered during the Italian surrender are trained up to use Allied aircraft and used over Yugoslavia to support the Yugoslavs because it's felt it's better to send them there than to ask them to try and fight over Italy, over their homeland, which might be demoralizing to them to see the civilian casualties that an air war inflicts. So instead, they're being sent to Vis to support the Yugoslav resistance. So as the months drag on, there's more and more strength, more motor gunboats, more Allied planes. One of the pilots who happens to be stationed on Vis for a little bit, by the way, is George McGovern, who will later be a Democratic candidate for president of the United States. Uh, so that's another wild character we could add in but won't to this podcast. And it really does help to keep partisan morale up and German morale down during what was otherwise a difficult period for the resistance movement in Yugoslavia. Wow, David, George McGovern joins the podcast as well. What a great story and a great success for the island of Vis, this tiny island off the coast of what is now Croatia, becoming really an important piece of the fight against the Germans in the Balkans. So, of course, David, with the benefit of history, we know that the Allies are going to go on to win this war, the Second World War. You mentioned that Vis was briefly independent. Briefly, there was no real ownership over the country, but of course, it is close to Yugoslavia. So how does the war wrap up in Yugoslavia, and how does it wrap up for the island of Vis with this large allied garrison there, and of course, Yugoslavian leadership there as well? So Yugoslavia, the war in Yugoslavia's ending is actually quite interesting because it has one of the largest resistance movements on the continent of Europe, they end up being one of the few countries to liberate substantial portions of their own territory with their own troops. A few Soviet army soldiers also seize portions of northern Yugoslavia from the Germans, but a large portion of Yugoslavia is liberated by Tito's communist forces which creates an interesting scenario at the end of the war as Tito refuses to obey orders from Stalin because he considers himself an equal head of a sovereign state. So they end up being the only communist country in Europe that is not part of the Warsaw Pact, the Russian-led communist bloc. And Vis, the island, becomes the, one of the key naval bases for the new nation of Yugoslavia, and that will be its status for decades until, of course, in the 1990s, Yugoslavia finally fails and collapses and Vis becomes a part of the modern state of Croatia, uh, which takes us all the way up to the modern day. Well, David, quite the story of how a small island that in August 1943 had 50 Italians who couldn't even be bothered to wake up when they were 
raided, ends up becoming a key component of the war in that part of the world. Thanks for telling us. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed this story, David, we have quite a few World War II stories. If you like the Mediterranean area, you might want to go back and listen to episode 19, The Monkey Bite, which is about Greece during World War II. But there are quite a few other interesting World War II stories that we've covered on this podcast. So go back through your feeds and give them a listen if you enjoyed this episode. David, we always like to end with something fun, a quiz. So are you ready for a quiz? I think so, Neil. All right, David, a few episodes ago, we did this quiz. We're going to do a few more. This is the history of geography quiz. So I have five cities for you and some historical facts about them. And your job is to guess the city. I have two facts for each city. So we'll give you a chance to get it on one fact. And if you can't, we'll give you the second fact. Are you ready to go? All right. Sounds good, Neil. All right. Our first city, croissants originated from this city, not from Paris, as you might have thought. As I recall, croissants are alleged to have been created for the first time during the siege of Vienna as part of a method of taunting the Ottoman Turks who used a crescent moon as their symbol. So that would be my guess for the city, Vienna. You are correct, David. It is Vienna. Our other fact was that this city is known as the birthplace of psychotherapy as Sigmund Freud lived here for most of his career. One for one on just one fact, David. Our next city, the microchip, was invented here in 1958. The microchip, huh? That's an interesting one. I certainly think of America when I think of early developments in computing in the 1950s, but I'm not 100% sure, so I'm going to ask for the second fact. A wise choice, David, because I'm fairly certain this fact will give it away for you. This is the city where President Kennedy was assassinated. Dallas, Texas. An excellent city. You got it right there, David. Our next city, David, this is a city where the Titanic was built. The Titanic. That's a British ship. I'm not 100% certain where it was built, so I'll ask for the second fact. The second fact is that after years of political unrest, peace was declared here after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Ah, Northern Ireland. Belfast. You're right, David. It is Belfast where the Titanic was built. Our next city, suntan lotion, was invented here in 1944. Okay, that one is too obscure for me. I don't even have anything cogent to say about that. So give me the next fact. All right, our next fact. I'm not sure if this will give it away for you or not, David. Some recent history. Will Smith released a song about this city in 1997. Does it count as history if both of us were alive for it? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't count as history, but I will say that I don't know enough of the Will Smith oeuvre to get this one. Uh, I'm guessing somewhere in America and presumably somewhere warm. So just to have a guess on the board, I think I'll say Miami, Florida meets that requirement. Oh, David, you don't give yourself enough credit for your knowledge of Will Smith. It is Miami, Florida, where suntan lotion was invented in 1944. Final City for you, David. This was one of the largest cities in the Confederate States of America. Large city in the Confederacy during the American Civil War. 
I always think of Richmond, Virginia, because it was the capital, but I don't think I'll make that my guess quite yet. I think I want to hear the second fact, because, of course, there was more than one city in the Confederacy. This is also fairly recent history here, David. It was devastated by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Ah, and I'm glad I didn't make a formal guess, because now I think it was New Orleans in Louisiana. You are correct, David. New Orleans, there were a few easy clues in there, but all fun to try and get these cities. Thanks for playing along. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 